nuclear. Australia is the nation that never quite got there in terms of developing a nuclear power industry. We've been blessed with abundant raw materials, including energy sources such as coal, sun, wind, gas and uranium. A federal election will be held in 2019 and energy and climate will be a voter issue. Additionally, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act is due for formal review this year. This is the Act which contains Clause 140A, the ban against the most powerful low-carbon energy technology. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. Committed listeners to Going Fishing will know that the first interview I conducted was with Dr. Ben Hurd, founder of the NGO Bright New World. Well, as of August last year, Bright New World has a new general manager, one who has extensive experience with representing mining and energy in South Australia. Dane Eckerman, welcome to Going Fishing. Yeah, thank you, Logan. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for agreeing to do this. We'll come back to Bright New World a little bit later, but prior to this, you worked for the South Australian Chamber of Mines and Energy, or SACOM. What's, what's their role? So effectively, most of the states in Australia have a, a membership-based organisation that represents mainly all the mining kind of sector companies. And in South Australia, we were also representing oil and gas kind of companies as well. In addition to that, we also had memberships from people who provide services to those industries. So, you know, anything ranging from legal right through to equipment, that sort of stuff. And yeah, basically it was our role to advocate for the industry, be their voice. So rather than having, you know, tens and hundreds of different companies talking to the government, they could pretty much come through us and, and we could be that conduit to the industry effectively. Yeah, nice. So sort of more specifically, what was the, the focus of your role there? So when I started there, it was a uh, new role that they started up. And so my original title was policy analyst and researcher. So basically what that meant was that the directors who managed the policy at SACOM needed a bit of extra assistance with doing the research, the policy stuff and all that sort of thing. So and they brought me on board to do all that. And then as my role progressed, basically I got more and more responsibility in, you know, leading policy projects and speaking at events and organising things like that. So then I ended up becoming the senior policy advisor. So effectively, yeah, it's a, a role where you create, deploy and manage policy that the members at SACOM would like us to pursue. So, yeah. Sort of as a resource body that's state-focused, how does it sort of interact with Minerals Council of Australia, which is more nationally focused? Yeah, so that, that's exactly right. So the Minerals Council is a national kind of focus. They only focus on the mineral side of the resources sector, whereas SACOM had, we looked after both oil and gas and minerals in South Australia. But basically, yeah, Minerals Council is national, if you look at it that way, and SACOM was a state body. I think New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia all have their own state ones, whereas Northern Territory and Victoria are divisions of the MCA. And effectively, yeah, on issues where they cross state borders or there are national issues, say, for example, the resources super profits tax back in 2010, I reckon it was, that's where people like the MCA and SACOM 
and the Queensland, New South Wales and West Australian chambers would also come together to talk about those issues and, and coordinate responses and, and those sorts of things. Can you tell us about the South Australian Public Opinion Survey that you guys have conducted in regards to uranium? Yeah, so if I don't know if a lot of people know this, but South Australia is home to the largest reserves of uranium in the world. I believe Australia has 27% of the world's uranium reserves and South Australia has 25% of the world. So basically 80% around thereabouts is all located in South Australia. Because of that, uranium was a key focus when we were working at SACOM to look at, you know, enhancing industry. And one of the things to keep in mind with policy and these sorts of things, it's, 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 it's essential to know what the public thinks and where their attitudes lay with certain issues. And one of them being uranium, it always has that, oh, how do I put it? It has that kind of negative stigma associated with it in, in terms of what the general public perceives. So when we did these surveys, one of the things, so everyone asked the same question, which is, do you support or oppose you know, uranium mining in South Australia? That's fine, but what that shows is because these polls are conducted on the telephone when someone's sitting at home by themselves, they are giving their personal opinion without any external factors in influencing them. So they're more open to saying yes to something that's controversial because there's no repercussions or consequences or peer pressure or whatever. It's not the town uh, hall. Exactly. It's not the town hall. Like, you know, there'll be a lot of people sitting in a town hall that will keep quiet. It's only the really vocal ones that get up there and push their agenda. So this originally came from a uranium survey from CAMCO in Canada. What they asked was, what is your support? I know, what is your attitude towards uranium mining? And the second question was, what do you perceive as the community's attitude towards uranium mining? So what they're asking there is, what do you think and what do you think the community thinks? So when we did this survey back in 2013, we asked, you, know, do you what's your level of support? And we got 55% support and 25% opposition to uranium mining. That actually exceeded what we were expecting to receive. And then when we asked that second question, what do you perceive um, the community's attitudes are towards uranium mining? We got 29% opposed and 14% positive. So what it showed to us was there was this inverse relationship between um, what I thought and what I perceived the community thinks. So... When we look at that and when we presented these findings to the public and also we presented them to particularly politicians, it was a bit of an eye-opener for them because what they were doing is they were doing that second question. They were perceiving, they were looking at what the community's perception was and perceiving it to be exactly the same way that everyone else did who did this poll, which was there's negative support. When we presented that, it made people go, oh, okay, Maybe we've got our perception of the community wrong. Maybe what this showed us was there was 55% support in when they're by themselves at home, but our assumption was incorrect that they were all opposed, which means that, and we we're talking about this, if you go to a barbecue, 
what it showed was if you had five people, three of them would be for it and two of them for against it. But everyone sitting there thinking, not talking, would be looking at it going, oh, everyone else here is opposed to this. We're not, we don't want to, you know, talk about this anymore. Exactly. We don't want to rock the boat. So when we presented that, it actually um, demystified a lot of the public perceptions of uranium mining. And it actually, when we came again around three years later during the Royal Commission and we did the same thing again, when we'd asked that second question, it actually shifted again. We still had that inverse correlation, but it wasn't as pronounced as the first one. So we were seeing a little bit of filtering through that these perceptions that people had, they were realizing, oh, hang on, People actually do support this. It's okay for me to talk about it, which, you know, is a, you know, if you talk to any sociologist and a psychologist, it is a phenomenon with a lot of things in society that people don't tend to put forward their personal views if they perceive it to be controversial. Um, so doing things like these polls actually helps in informing people going, oh, okay, well, this isn't as bad as what we think it is. It is. Yes, yeah, sweet. Uh, you mentioned earlier on that the... Australian share of uranium uh, is 27%. I've heard it quoted as ever, anything as high as 40% and now down to 27%. Where does the sort of number come from? Is it from the Red Book and is it constantly sort of in a bit of a state of flux as new reserves are discovered or what's the... The Uranium Red Book, which is the publication that's produced by the IAEA, yeah, that, that is a go-to guide for that and that's where that figure would come from. But also every state has one. Is a, they have a mining department. And the mining department here in South Australia has a actually it is it is ranked as the best geological record in the world. Their database basically incorporates every single drill hole that's ever drilled and all the results. And so effectively, so when an exploration company comes to South Australia, they will do their exploration project. They will get a bunch of um, so for people who don't know. There's different types of drilling methods with minerals. One of them you can do is diamond core drilling. It's basically where you drill down and you get a it, it, the drill bit has a hollow center. So basically you're cutting out a core of, of what you're drilling through. All that core samples and all the, so the other drilling methods where it just brings up loose material, all that sampling, that sort of stuff is surrendered back to the mining department and is stored in a special library we have here. So all that information all the different identified resources are then kind of put into this geological database and then from that they can infer what the size of the resource is South Australia. And there is a code that is set up so that these measurements are as accurate as possible and done by competent people. Because back in the, I'm trying to think what decade it was, either the 70s or 80s, we had an incident here in Australia called Poseidon Nickel where they reported some drilling results and everyone jumped on the company because they thought they found the biggest nickel deposit in the world and, in fact, they didn't really have that much of a resource at all and it collapsed and a lot of people lost a lot of money on it. So they had to, right. develop, this, so they had to develop this code which is then goes and informs the things like the Uranium Red Book where you have measured, indicated... Third inferred resources yeah exactly and in every mining company has to issue these kind of measurements 
And from that, they can then determine what the different levels of resources are. And the Uranium Red Book does take their data from for South Australia from the mining department here and their own measurements as well. I know of the guy who did that and he was from South Australia and, and it's a very comprehensive assessment. Yeah, right. How often is that new information updated? A couple of months or? Um, I believe they receive it as it comes in, but it's updated. Mm, I can't remember if it's every year or every two years. Yeah, right. But yeah, it's on the, yeah, the IAE's website and yeah. the Uranium Red Book. And I believe the OECD Nuclear Energy Agency also has a free copy available through their website as well. Yep. Hey, um, I thought it was interesting the because uh, I remember studying and looking at the uh, the Red Book myself. Yeah, it had the 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 measured inferred or measured indicated inferred resources. I thought mm. that was just a thing they did for uh, for uranium, but is that uh, recognised broadly throughout the uh, mining industry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so any any um, mineral resource will have those figures associated with it. It gives um, oil and gas industry has it too, but they have a different kind of measurement structure. But it gives people an idea. What's a good example? Uh, for example, somewhere like Venezuela has a lot of oil, but when you look at what type of oil it is and where it's located, it's it's a different story to extract it and get it and get a hand like get onto it. Whereas somewhere that has moderate reserves of a high like of a measured level you can be quite assured that you know okay we can get at that sort of resource you know we can we can dig it out so yeah when people looking at these so uh, the the actual figure is for australia's 27 percent and south australia's 25 and that comes straight from the mining department and i believe that's an amalgamation of the different levels to um arrive at those figures so yeah yeah. I think it's also possibly for those that might not have been uh, involved in the mining industry, coming back to sort of the drilling and the core samples one might do, you, what you would do is you would have a drill rig set up and you would take core samples along a grid and you would be able to analyse that. And from looking at all of that, you would be able to figure out an, what the ore body looks like or how you'd be yeah, able exactly. to figure out a 3D space model where the best ore is and how you'd go ahead with mining that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what they do. And, and through different stages of exploration, you you, it, it's like defining the, the the resource. So your initial drilling will be quite widely spaced out grid of drill holes, and then as you hone in on that mineral target, you get more finer and finer with your grid spacings. And then as a mine is operational, they will continually drill and take core and and samples and that sort of stuff. Basically to the point where a mine can set up a block model. Think of it as in a terms of all different Lego blocks. And they can make up a Lego block. I think one company told me it's eight, eight by eight by eight metres cubed. And they know when they drill into that and then blast it, when the excavator goes in to dig out a block, it knows exactly what grade of ore and where to send it in the mine, whether they're going to send it to a run of mine pad where they store it or where it's going to go straight to the crusher so then when they send that stuff straight to the crusher they know exactly what grades of whatever mineral they're looking for are going through that process so they know in the end what they're supposed to get out it's actually kind of when when i first started at SACOM and i went to visit on sites and see all these things i was actually kind of blown away by how defined and how you know they can get these kind of resource models and, and, and definitions and all that sort of stuff. So, 
Communities surrounding nuclear power stations tend to have a broader public understanding and acceptance than those communities more isolated from it. Is this mirrored in South Australia and uranium mining? It, it is to a degree. The thing to remember about South Australia is everyone in South Australia is basically located around Adelaide and the two gulfs that are down here, whereas our uranium mines, Beverly and Honeymoon, are out on the Barrier Highway right kind of far up north near the Flinders Ranges there. The other big one, which is the biggest deposit, is Olympic Dam, which is, you know, just next to Roxby. And Roxby Downs is a mining town, effectively. It was created for that mine. So the people in that community, they are understanding of, of the deposit and that sort of stuff. And even if they don't work in the mine, they work for a company or for a service that supports the mine. And so when looking at their attitudes, they're more favourable because they're familiar with it. They know what they know what it is, know what goes on. They might know someone who's in the radiation management department of the of the mine, whereas the other ones like Honeymoon and Beverly, there's hardly anyone out there. It's just pastoralists and a few remote communities. And what you find is, yeah, there is a familiarisation effect that when people become familiar with something that has a perceived high risk, they become more comfortable with it. This was something that we touched on in the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission when I was at SACOM. One of the things we noticed was the more someone becomes familiar with something to do with the nuclear industry, the more able they are to either be comfortable with it and just live with it or support it. And one of the we looked at France because France is a you know compared to Australia it's a small country and it has a lot of nuclear and a lot of nuclear facilities in in the country and we're wondering why they had this broad support with people living next to these communities we found out first that the French government actually gave people lower taxes in these areas where nuclear power plants be developed and you can kind of see that as a way of the government incentivizing you know people to stay near the plant and as time's gone on and people have lived in these communities and they've lived next door to plant operators or people who work in it they become more comfortable with it they, they they're less likely to outright oppose it and we found those sorts of similar similar things here in south australia with uranium mining people who knew someone or worked with someone or understood it they were fine with it they didn't have a problem with it when we presented this to the first citizens jury the, at the Royal Commission, we did a presentation that was solely focused on that perception of nuclear to present the positive sides of the industry and to frame it in that context. And the example we used was, I just found this completely by accident, is in Switzerland, the Gröningen nuclear power plant is located two kilometres as the crow flies from the Lint Chocolate Factory. Ah, nice. Now, the Lint Chocolate Factory, so Easter is coming up, and <laughs> or, and everyone loves, like, Lint Chocolate is, the, is like that expensive chocolate that people get, something special. And what we did was is we presented the Gernigan, was it, Gersigan nuclear power plant in Switzerland, and if you go 30Ks from the Lint Chocolate Factory, there is this Villag nuclear fuel repository. So where Switzerland stores all their spent nuclear fuel. 
And because the Royal Commission was looking at this spent nuclear fuel storage proposal, we presented that as well. And one of the things we did was we put lint chocolates on the table for everyone. And everyone thought it was just a nice gesture. And when it came to the end of presentation and we said, oh, and also these nuclear power plants are next door to linked chocolate, but it doesn't stop you from eating linked chocolate because there's nothing wrong with the linked chocolates. You could see everyone in, in the audience kind of go, oh, and it clipped on like a light bulb. And when we finished it up, we gave, we, you know, talking about familiarization because it helps for someone to personally associate something they've experienced with this sort of thing. And we talked to them like it's exactly like a roller coaster. Anyone who's been on a roller coaster knows when you're in the lineup, there is an anxiety that sets in and there's a nervousness. And when you push yourself to get to push yourself through that anxiety and you get on the roller coaster and it goes and you end up having and it's one of the most fun things you do all day and you get off and you're like, oh, I want to do that again. Going from where you started with that high anxiety level to the end and going, actually, that wasn't as bad as I thought, that process is the similar process with this with nuclear. That, you know, people in Australia have a predisposition where they're opposed. That's just the that's just the status quo here. But when they kind of, you know, and use another analogy, dip their toes in the water and get comfortable with it, they realize actually this isn't so bad. It actually isn't as bad as I thought it was. So, you know, that is, yeah, that, that is something that we you know, put forward is and and recognised and it's, you know, that, that, that perspective was fed in through sociological kind of studies and psychological studies and, and how people think and react to certain things. Um, you know, if anyone wants a good start on that sort of stuff, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, you know, that's a great book to understand how the, the mind works in terms of, you know, we react based on our emotional response first, but then the rational part kicks in afterwards. And so it's how do you talk to people about these issues with keeping, you know, what we know in mind, basically with keeping, you know, what we know in mind, basically. Yeah, very good. Mm. Tell us a bit about the Finkel Review and the recommendations Sacco made to it. Yeah, so the Finkel Review, for those maybe overseas who don't know about it, is in 2016 in Australia, we had what would have been the first incidences of an evolving electricity market with increasing high penetrations of renewables and withdrawals of old coal-fired power plants. So everyone in 2016 remembers the statewide blackout South Australia had. So we had a massive storm that came through the state. Not well, The abridged version is we had a massive storm coming through the state. It created a, a bunch of tornadoes which ripped up and knocked over transmission lines those transmission lines falling over caused voltage disturbances in the network in south australia which caused a 415 megawatts of wind farms to trip off because of their protection settings and that then cascaded to the interconnector overloading it shut itself down protect itself and because those things happened within a second the network 
couldn't cope and it just completely shut itself down to protect it. So the entire state went off. That blackout then necessitated the state government and the Commonwealth government to react. And what they initiated was the Finkel Review, which its longer <laughs> title was Independent Review into the Future Security of the National Electricity Market. When they talk about security of the market, they're talking about voltage and frequency mainly. Whereas people like to talk about reliability, like how reliable is something. In the, uh, the national energy market here in Australia, reliability is, it refers to how much energy is produced and, and how much and how much of that is in terms of percentage um, isn't produced. And it's a very, very small fraction of a percent. So reliability in the national electricity market is actually still pretty good. It's very reliable. Where the issue is, is it comes into system security, which is that frequency and voltage control. It's how the system works. It has to operate at a frequency of oh, is it 60 hertz in Australia. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think 50, oh, sorry, 60, 50 hertz. Yeah. It's 50, yeah, it's 50 yeah. hertz, yeah. Um, so those things have to be kept in line so everything can operate normally. So in 2016, we had the statewide blackout in South Australia. But before that, we actually had a different event which actually precipitated a lot of, a lot of policies and a lot of submissions to the various energy market bodies about um, the affordability of the network. So in July that year, we had a period where it was very cold. We had a lot of high pressure zones over Australia, which meant wind was producing very little. We were relying on gas generation. And at that time, because it was cold, there was a lot of demand for gas in terms of heating and, and those sorts of things. So the gas price went up quite high. A lot of gas generators were operating on spot market, um, which means they're buying gas at about 14 to $16 a gigajoule, and that's Australian. And what that meant was the spot price of uh, electricity in July was hovering around the $1,000 per megawatt hour. There was one business that I know of was paying $2.5 million a day in electricity, wow. which is which is not sustainable at all. And so that event, the statewide blackout, and then there was a couple of other load shedding events in November and February following that, that then really kind of made the... So in Australia, we have all of our energy ministers in the States and the Commonwealth Energy Minister. They have a... Uh, they all get together at a meeting called COAG and there is an energy kind of committee there. They all got together and commissioned Australia's chief scientist, Dr. Alan Finkel, to do this review into system security in the national electricity market. So that's where the Finkel review comes from. Before that, SACOM had been sending submissions to and talking about these system security issues since that July event. And one of the things that I picked up on when we were doing this research was that there were successive reports from the Australian energy market operator, AMO, stating, well, raising red flags and stating that system security were becoming a problem, particularly in South Australia, with higher and higher penetrations of renewables and withdrawals of existing generation like coal-fired power plants. So in 2015, South Australia, the northern power plant, which is a coal-fired power plant, closed because they couldn't operate in the market anymore. 
And that was one of the first red flags that AMO had said, yeah, this could be a problem. And then they did a review to these studies in 2016 stating, okay, Northern's closed down. We got higher and higher penetrations of wind in South Australia. This is going to be a problem in system security if we don't pay attention to it. Then it just rolled on. We had July that came around with the price volatility. And then September rolled around with the blackout. And basically what we saw was, hang on, they actually knew the red flags and the consequences of not acting. It just so happened that before the statewide blackout, SACOM was talking to AMO, I reckon it was in July of that, no, January that year, and they did analysis on statewide blackouts and their scenarios for the Haywood interconnector failing. So if the Haywood interconnector connects to South Australia to Victoria broke or failed or needed repairs, the statewide blackout could have gotten on for a lot longer. So it, for majority of Adelaide, majority of South Australian residents, it was only statewide blackout only lasted for a couple of hours for them. Everyone north of the line breaks was off for about two weeks, I believe. Mm. Everyone below the breaks came on alright because the Haywood interconnector was still, it was still there. It was still, it was still intact. It just had it was, Yeah, no, it was still intact. Um, I didn't realise that actually. I, I didn't because I knew some infrastructure had failed. Uh, I thought the interconnector had failed. No, it infrastructure yeah, it, it, elsewhere on the network had failed, and that had triggered yeah, exactly. a, a chain of events that caused the interconnector to trip. Exactly, and and the interconnector had a protection setting. It's rated for six hundred and fifty megawatts. It spiked to nine hundred. Yeah, so to protect itself, it, it tripped. Yeah, it cut the breakers and that sort of stuff. So yeah, so we we recognised all these things. We we're talking with AMO, and everyone knew what was going to happen if no one did anything and it still happened. And in terms of policy and as someone who comes from that policy role, it's like being told the danger is there and you don't do anything about it and you get hurt and you go, oh, why did I get hurt? Well, we know, we're that. telling you why. No one seems exactly. to have done anything. So, you know, coming back to those you know, what did SACOM recommend to the Finkel review? Well, the first two recommendations were effectively this work already exists. Like, they're already assessing it. They're doing good work on it. There needs to be what we call a competent authority to be able to give powers of direction on system security issues to say to the energy ministers, hey, look, you've got a problem here. You need to do something about it or you're going to end up like South Australia did. So that was the first recommendation. The second one was there needs to be a continuous assessment of system security. So there needs to be like a like a traffic light system, red, you know, red, amber, and green, saying, you know, this is a critical issue, this is an issue that needs to be watched, this isn't okay, this issue is okay. And what was really nice to see was when the Finkel review came with their final recommendations, they recommended two things out of all the ones they did. One was the establishment of the Energy Security Board, which is a board comprised of an independent chair and co-chair and the CEOs of the energy market operator, the energy regulator and the energy market commission. So the basically the operator, the rule maker and the regulator. And that aligned perfectly with that first thing. So the Energy Security Board, and you can find this on the COAG Energy Council, is that they're established now and they're looking at system security issues. 
And on the second point, the continual assessment of system security, they actually now are doing something called the health of the NEM report. So they're looking at where these system security issues are and they're flagging them in terms of red is critical, orange is watch, and green is this is okay. So it's good now that there is a body that is specifically saying to energy ministers, you've got a problem here, you need to deal with it. And they are, which is great now. So all that great work that AMO did, and they did that in partnership with the South Australian transmission operator, Electronet, that's all been listened to now and reported. So really an energy minister or department or whatever can't say, oh, we didn't know that report existed. Like there is an actual body now that says you've got a problem. That was two of the key recommendations that came out of SACOM that the Fink Review adopted. And, you know, we're quite, quite proud that they actually took that on board and, and referenced it and, and used it. Some of the other ones were, it's just, you know, it, all kind of industry associations have these kind of policies, recommendations, is that, you know, everything should be assessed on a technology-neutral basis. So if you're looking at lowering emissions, well, in the energy sector, that's your end. The means should be neutral. So whatever technology can cut emissions, whether it's renewables, nuclear, or carbon capture and storage as well, should be looked at. You shouldn't just dismiss it because you don't like it. It narrows your assessment and it can, you know, give you at least optimal outcome. Just looking at those things, like if you're going to bring in new policies, you know, assess them on the three grounds that they think review. They called it a trilemma, affordability, reliability and security, and low emissions. So those three things, assess them on those three outcomes. Say, for example, you're getting fantastic reliability and security, but it's it's not affordable and and it's high emissions. Well, then it's no point in doing it. You know, you, you should find a good balance. And, you know, for one of the things that, you know, we put forward at Bright New World and, and what I did, you know, at SACOM was nuclear fits all three. It can be affordable if you build it the right way, as we've seen internationally. It can provide system security services like frequency control. It does have a good reliability, like a lot of the nuclear power plants in the world have capacity factors of 90%. In terms of low carbon, well, it emits no carbon emissions during operation. So... It's only the back end and the front end of the cycle that do it. And because uranium is so energy dense, its emissions are quite low. It's on par with wind. I mean, that's from the IPCC. So, you know, those were some of the recommendations we put forward. And it's funny, you know, the recommendations that came out from the Finkel Review were great. They were really well-rounded, solid things. And it led to things like the ACCC's retail price inquiry on electricity prices and, and a bunch of other things, which is great. But the issue is it's like where when I worked at SACOM and it's true for anyone who works in the space where they have to deal with government is there's good policy and then you've got to add a layer of politics over the top and then you end up with whatever's left. What we're seeing now in Australia in terms of energy policy, so the recommendations for Finkel Review are great. But then we come along and, you know, we talk about things like, you know, fair dinkum power and all that sort of stuff. And it's, you look at it and you have to shake your head because it's like you take a good policy and then both, polit like the political parties here in Australia will take the bits they like and ignore the bits they hate or are a bit too uncomfortable for them and try and push through a policy that, you know, kind of works, but it's not the 
you know, it's not the most optimal solution. It reminds me of uh, an old Billy Connolly routine where he talks about, um, you know, a committee is all about uh, a body where a good idea comes in, it goes in, it gets bashed around and goes to a subcommittee and this, that, and it comes out a shadow of its former self and is Pretty much. used to nobody. Because um, obviously we, we don't have a plan for the energy policy from you know federal government for how we're going to sort of move everything forward. Nothing sort of structured saying, okay, this is a really solid engineered way to manage it. But it does seem that perhaps the recommendations in these bodies that have been set up to provide advice or provide a watch over the system could be a good conduit to uh, to provide information to support that happening perhaps further down the line yeah yeah exactly and as as things now the digital age and that sort of stuff it's all there so it's it's you just got to look know where to look for it and find it and one of the things that you know organizations like bright new world are doing and other organizations should as well is take these technical and highly like these these technical and 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 policy rich reviews and documents and committees and that sort of stuff distill out the key messages and present them to the public in a way that they can understand but there is a bit of caution there though with doing that and people should be this is where you know those kind of critical thinking and and analysis skills come in is that every organization has a they have their own agendas their own objectives and at Bright New World and, and some work we're working on at the moment is to present those in a very clear and transparent manner, saying, you know, this is what our objectives are for Bright New World. This is where we're heading. You know, these, these, these are our ends and these are the means we're going to adopt. So anything we say, you can go, oh, so that's where it's coming from. You know, they're saying it for this reason um, and, and be quite upfront and honest about that. The trap with with what NGOs do is you present, you, you take a government report, you distill it and you present the facts only you want people to see and you spin them. So it comes into political spin. You, you spin it the way you want to present it. And it is a trap that people can fall into accidentally because they are not being mindful of that. The more... I wouldn't go as far as saying it's unethical, but being deliberately like that, um, I think is it's where NGOs fall over and it gives everyone a bad name. It's where lobbyists get a bad name from. It's that sort of you know attitude towards things. It's great these Commonwealth bodies and that sort of stuff and and that are doing all these fantastic reports, analysis, details, that sort of stuff. And then when people who come along like membership associations like where I was at SACOM or NGOs like we have Bright New World come along, the key for everyone to look at is going, okay, so Bright New World stands for this, this and this. Are they presenting that information as like as neutrally as possible? There will be a little bit of bias. I won't go out and distill a report on saying we should expand the use of fossil fuels, but people should just keep that in the back of their mind when you know we're looking at all these kind of studies and reports and reviews and and the people who are presenting them just to kind of like go oh, okay so that's bright new world there for energy development low carbon that sort of stuff are they presenting that as neutrally as possible and as general manager of bright new world that is something that i'm impressing on everyone is that 
you should be able to stand behind the work you do and it should be robust, honest and verifiable. And we're not in the game of hiding or being devious or those sorts of things with the information because that just gives everyone else a bad name and the general public once in Australia I uh, I like to say that Australians here have a great sense of knowing when something's not quite right they've um, got a great BS detector so when they see someone's talking BS they go yeah you're full of it you know I'm not going to listen to you anymore and they tune out so this whole energy debate you talk to the general public they just care about what they see on the electricity bill, effectively. And if you come along and spin something and present it to them saying, I've said this a lot to people, and particularly in the renewable energy space, just to tell them to be careful because coming back to South Australia, we have a high penetration of renewables in this state, but when people look at their electricity bills, they're not seeing price reductions flow through. So when people come out and say renewables can be cheap, they're going to be cheaper, your power price is going to be cheaper building more renewables, well, people in South Australia look at their power bill and go, no, it's not. And while there is a complex relationship between those two things in the market, when the public look at it and someone says build more, it's going to be cheaper, and then they say we've built more and it's not cheaper, then people tend to tune out. They go, I don't care anymore. And that's bad because we want to reduce emissions. And if people are presenting that particular perspective and it's it's with good intentions, but it has unintended consequences and you're not aware of those, then it just hurts everyone else in the space. We as NGOs and people who distill and present information to the public to get them to act on certain issues, we've got to be really mindful of that fact that we could accidentally present something in a way that has consequences down the track that will Gets run counter to what we do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I like what you said about um, how people or NGOs can fall into a trap of uh, of becoming biased. Because I think one of my favourite um, oh, phrases or favourite concepts is, uh, is that of Hanlon's razor, which basically says, never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity or ignorance. And yeah, I, think exactly. that, I think that's that really is true. For so many things that people get frustrated in life, you know, someone says, oh, yeah. there's obviously someone acting malicious. It's, it's probably not. It's probably some system stuffed up. And and, and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I see is, is generally, it's basically, it comes down to, you know, people who are great at, at creating action and, and activism and that sort of stuff. And that's good. It's a positive thing for society. But what sometimes happens is, Grassroots activism and professional advocacy and lobbying, there's a step between the two. And what we see a lot happen is people come into the um, the advocacy space, the professional advocacy space, and they've come from that activist kind of groups and mindset and mentality. And they are more interested in standing at the front of an organisation and picketing it and, and saying their message and getting on the news than actually, whereas someone who's in that professional advocacy space will actually go and talk to the company and work out where you can, where you can work on, say, if you want them to cut emissions, well, you could tell them you've got to cut emissions and stand out the front and put pressure on them, but what that will mainly do is mainly push them into a corner and they might react 
counter to what you want them to. And it's what we see a lot in the energy space is basically there's this war of two ideologies and everyone picks a team and picks a battle, but actually we all really have to work together to fix this problem because we're all in it. And by creating sides and battles and, you know, revolutions and all this sort of stuff, it's, it's very combative and it's very counter to what we need to do. So you see that kind of step where people come in from that activism space, which is good, but they don't change their methods to actually meet the kind of objectives they want. So, you know, that's something at Brighton World that I've been telling people is that act, like, action is great. You know, gaining attention for an issue is good, but you've got to do it in a way, whereas if you need a company to come on your side, going to them and yelling at them is going to get nowhere because these are professional organisations, you know. People who deal with them know what that professionalism I've is. I've seen it with Adani, actually, and I've actually seen some exactly. um, ads in the paper saying, uh, you know, basically hitting back and saying, no, we're going to go ahead with this. We're going to create the jobs and we're going to uh, do such and such. And what you're presenting is is misinformation. Yeah. And, um, and that sounds like a direct example of what you're describing there. Yeah, it's, it's, it is in a way. And, you know, it's, you know, looking at someone like uh, here in South Australia, Santos, the, the oil and gas giant here they you know they're a south australian company they operate in the cooper basin in the north of the state it's australia's largest onshore oil and gas field going in and actually talking to them because every organization this is this is what i found when i was in the mining industry every mine on site has an environmental body they have a body there that's dedicated to doing environmental assessments and and all those sorts of things and all those people in that office if you had to kind of pigeonhole them into a particular type of value set and ideology you'd call them green like i went into one mine site and i walked into the environmental um managers in the offices their kind of space in the in the in the office building and there's pictures of animals everywhere there's samples of different flora and fauna that are specifically native to that area and you look at it and you go these people really care about the environment they really care about what they do and they're there to minimise impact as much as possible. Um, and if you come at that organise that company, for example, and you say, you guys are damaging the environment, you guys are destroying this, you guys are evil, you need to shut up shop, you need to go away. These people that actually are there to care about it, you're actually calling someone that would be your ally a bad person. And... It's better, I found, to be open and to be honest about where you stand on issues, but not to be that aggressive and to talk to them and work out, okay, we recognise that you can't be, say, for example, burning coal forever. Where, what's the transition plan? What can we talk about? What can we do? What's your business plan? Where are you going with things? Those sorts of things. And then working on a compromise because... That's what's going to have to be. Like you can't forcibly remove people and forcibly shut things down because the green movement has values deeply seated in, this is going to get very political, libertarianism, individual freedoms and that sort of thing. And and um, the more and more you push an issue like that, the more and more authoritarian you become and you're getting into the realms that where people in society, we've always recoiled from. You know, and that's that's going to be a fact of the future. We're going to have to work together to solve problems because by yelling, say, for example, at Adani, you go home, go away, 
for example, I, I don't think a lot of people know this. Adani has a a project to build a solar farm here in South Australia. Yeah, right. Now, the Stop Adani movement, does that mean they're going to stop their development of a solar farm here in South Australia? Like, like, well, the campaign has good intentions and it's something that we could get behind. It's, you know, it's you got to look at your means to get to your end and make sure you're not confusing the two and make sure you're not doing something that will, in the long run, hurt your chances. Be counterproductive. What coal company is going to talk to those people? None. They will go out there and attempt to talk to them, but... You know, you look at it. You look at some actions and that sort of stuff, and there's just no chance of conciliation or anything. And it's you know, it's gonna. That's why we're in this situation where we have political uh, policy stagnation on energy policy in Australia because there's tribes and everyone's going to fight for their own tribe because that's what they're told to do, and it's not it's not going to work. You know, I'd rather be in talking to these companies or governments or it doesn't matter what political party you are, I'm going to talk to you regardless of what who you are and what you believe in because I believe we have to work together, we have to find a solution. Going back to talking about environmental engineers and people in mm. that space, you know, I was talking to a person who was studying environmental engineering and, yeah, well, I asked them about what they were studying and said, oh, yeah, environmental. So, ah, so you're essentially a, um, a greenie that's uh, getting a, a degree in, in that yeah. space. And they said, yeah, that's exactly who I am. Yeah, you know, it's, exactly. They, they don't hide from it. And I mean, yeah, I've worked with a um, with large mining companies, and yeah, they have environmental engineers and that and and conservation people or people that, you know involved in that space, such that hmm. uh, and even archaeologists. One of my best mates, a um, he's an archaeologist, but yeah, one of his jobs was you know his first before a mine actually is opened out in a certain area, his job is to go out there, liaise with the traditional owners, and look for artifacts of, of Aboriginal heritage, such as scar trees or shellmans mm. or remains. And then, you know, they decide with traditional owners, what are they going to do with them? Are they going to put a buffer around it or are they yeah. are they going to have them moved and sort of uh, recovered and they'll make a, um, make a, like a, a museum piece out of it later on? But mm. um, there's a fair bit that goes on in a modern mining company that is not the same as what happened in the 20th century and, and before. Oh, exactly. And going to the Aboriginal heritage thing, they... I know a lot of companies, they're very keen to talk to, uh, in Australia, each Aboriginal group have a native title claim to an area where they go, okay, you know, our people have had a continuous relationship with this land and it's recognised by the federal court here in Australia. And the companies that go into these areas, because the first thing they do, they go and talk to the whichever native title group there is in that area, and they're very keen to work with them. There's a lot of opportunity that comes into areas that have no opportunity, and and the people who are the Aboriginal liaison people, they they care deeply about those connections. And, and there's a fantastic example here in South Australia. There's a new copper mine that's opening around the Roxby kind of Olympic Dam area called Carapatina, and the company there, Oz Minerals. The work they did with the native title there, the for the Cockata people, is is amazing. Involving them in every step in the way. I believe they've named the camp or the airstrip that's there with an Aboriginal name. They're very respectful to the culture that's been there. Same thing with the Beverly Uranium Mine. They're in Adamantna land, and they've provided opportunity into an area where there was just tourism, basically, and. There's people who work at that mine that have 
jobs, careers and skills now that they wouldn't ordinarily have that can then go on to other projects or those sorts of things. You go, I know, and we presented this evidence to the Royal Commission, the honeymoon uranium mine, the royalties from that that went to the Adamant, the people helped them purchase the Wilpena Pound Resort in the Flinders Ranges, which is one of the premier kind of locations in the Flinders Ranges, gave them the opportunity to have now their culture presented to every tourist and visitor that comes into that region now who goes through the Wilpena Pound. People like to talk about the environmental impact and damage of development and that sort of stuff in areas, but what also happens is when, particularly in, in Australia where mines are in remote locations, you're having people and places go into an area that ordinarily wouldn't have people there and, you know, you're finding endangered species that are thought there was only a handful left and actually we've gone into this area and we found out there's a huge population here so then the the company will look at going okay how can we protect these because this is essential like where how can we do this there's a great example the olympic dam mining lease is a part of it that they've basically said to a, a a an environmental organization called arab recovery here take this land rehabilitate it reintroduce species and they've reintroduced the bilby and that was basically, yeah, and there's a, I'm trying to think of the name, I think it's like the Wama snake or something like that. Up, it's up in like the north, western, eastern corner of South Australia. They basically thought this thing didn't exist, like it was on the verge of extinction. It didn't exist. And then they found it again in the area because the mine went there. And because the mine was there, a bunch of environmental engineers and officers were out there and they go and do land surveys and they found it and this is the thing that you know people tend to forget is not only yes there is an impact and we try and people try to minimize the impact as much as possible but also there is a group of people that go along with that project that actually do care and will go in the area and you might find even flora that you thought didn't exist anymore you find it again by the act of having a place there, you're eradicating pest species. Because I know, uh, like, there's environmental officers that their job is to eradicate pest species, like feral cats. Feral cats kill a lot of native reptiles and birds. And by taking away that feral pest, they are then now enabling that population to flourish again. And that's what we're seeing. So, effectively, these projects these things they have a lot of positive impacts other than just the 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 fallback yeah basically the economic you know job impacts there's a lot of actual other positive impacts that do come along with these sorts of things when i had my interview with daniel zavatiero one of the things he said Mm. was one of the biggest things for wondering how much resource we have if we seem to be running out of resources go out and survey and look for them and chances are you're going to find resources out there now, it also seems fitting that you would also find, as you've described, flora and fauna that the people are finding new pockets of them. Exactly, yeah. And when they go out to an area, they have to survey it and they have to present a plan to the department and what they found and what these species are. They have to do an environmental assessment. So when you do those sorts of things, you tend to find stuff that you ordinarily wouldn't have found in those areas. So there are these kind of positive benefits that come along that people don't realize and that if you just go out and demonize the company, then you're just kind of ignoring all that other work as well. And there could be there's some conservation groups that will fight against a project and 
not realise that actually there could be some quite significant conservation benefits that come with the project. Fascinating. All right, so what's a, what's a good energy? We're going to come back to energy now after mm. a, after sort of talking about mine development and such. Yeah. But what's a what's a good effective energy policy that the government should pursue? What what could it involve? And, and so, well, I mean, I suppose you've already, already kind of argued, uh, answered this, but where you know where the, where the Finkel review recommendations a good start for that? Yeah, the Finkel Finkel review recommendations were a good start. Just, it's important to note that the Finkel review looked at system security and they came up with that energy trilemma which was affordability reliability and security and low carbon um because they realized that those three things are all essential for australia's electricity market and with energy policy what i helped develop SACOM was just a basic framework that you could apply any any issue to and you could work out whether it's an important issue and sort of stuff one of the key things was technology neutrality so basically you don't exclude choices just because you don't like them you have to keep all of them in the mix to work out what's the optimal outcome so one of those things in australia is including nuclear because it has been proven internationally to work at cutting emissions and we have seen grids that have nuclear energy with cheaper prices than what we have here just to talk about prices, you know, South Australia, the a when the ACCC did their retail price inquiry, and for those international listeners, in Australia we have the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, which is basically there to protect consumer rights. So if someone is fleecing people out of money or delivering a dodgy service and charging a high price for it, the ACCC is there to basically slap them down effectively. I've used them um, before. They're, they're, they're pretty yeah. good. They uh, put out some pretty good information for oh, all, yeah. people at all levels, even if it's just someone that's um, a, a single consumer. Yeah, exactly. And the ACCC, I have a lot of respect for them because at SACOM we did a project to bring together some of our biggest members' electricity load and to use that combined load to initiate a power price contract to improve competition in the South Australian market. The ACCC, through that whole process, are fantastic. They're very professional. They know what their remit is. They know what they're doing. I have a lot of time for the ACCC, and I'm kind of one of the things about Australia that I, it's fantastic that we have this body there to protect consumers. And in so they did a retail price inquiry to look at why price is so high. South Australia, they this is on an international basis, so they've adjusted it and made it all compared apples to apples. South Australia has an international electricity price of 47.8 cents per kilowatt hour. You compare that to somewhere like Sweden and France that are in the 30 to 27 cents per kilowatt hour range. These are in US dollars? Uh, in Australian dollars. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're Australian dollars. And then you look at places like Denmark and Germany, well, Denmark's 50 cents and Germany's 49 cents. Very so that's right. retail price. So that's what you pay. That's what the consumer pays. You look at that sort of a chart and the ACCC has that in their price inquiry final report and also the other report that if you want to know about retail prices and competition in the electricity and gas market in Australia is the Australian Energy Regulator, the AER, have a report they do every year called the State of the Energy Market. In that report, it has all these sorts of details, what the retail prices are, the breakdowns, network, what parts wholesale, what parts green policies and all that sort of stuff. 
And if anyone wants to know about like prices, the AER state the energy market report is a fantastic place to go. So yeah, you look at those sorts of prices and you look at those sorts of energy makeups in those grids and there are other factors as well that you have to keep in mind, but at a passing glance, you look at that and you go, are we doing the right thing here? Is what we are doing correct? Is is because we're excluding one kind of key technology choice, are we getting a less optimal outcome? Because you look at Germany and they're just above South Australia in terms of electricity price and they're going hard into renewables, withdrawing nuclear and winding down coal. So you look at that policy and then you look at what's happening on the affordability scale and you go, are we putting too much into two categories and not enough into another? So are we unbalancing the kind of the trilemma? And so one of those key kind of policy positions is to have a technology neutral approach is that your end goal is these three things, affordability, reliability, security, and low carbon. That's your goal. It's not to build lots of wind or solar or hydro or nuclear or coal or gas. It's to get to those three outcomes and the pathway, make sure it's a technology neutral approach because otherwise you might miss out on something. And, you know, looking at these sorts of charts, you kind of go, maybe we are. and Maybe we need to look at it a little bit closer. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, I think Germany is still running seven nuclear reactors at the moment. And I think they're all due to shut in the early 2020s. But um, yeah. the fact that they are still running and still providing a significant amount of their electricity, I shudder to think what is going to happen when they shut them down. Because as far as I know, it's when you pretty much elect to shut down a reactor in the, the world's the way of sense at the moment, that's, that's it. It's going to happen. There's not too much you can do to... Um, to reverse that decision Um, and when that happens I think oh god it's a bad situation is just going to get worse yeah and you gotta and the key thing is to like pay attention to the people who are the ones that have operated and managed this stuff for eons like it's it's premature to like just dismiss these people as the entrenched like you know what we hear the entrenched you know energy monopoly you know these people have experience and expertise in areas that is essential for determining these sorts of things. In South Australia, it's funny, we had we used to have a I suppose you call it a nationalized electricity operator and, and network manager, ETSA. And back in two thousand and three or four, I reckon, when South Australia was going to push heavily into wind they commissioned a report about what are some of the things we need to be aware of. One of the things they came up with is with the higher and higher penetrations of variable generation, so generation that's weather dependent, is that you're going to run into these problems of system security and potentially affordability. And if it's not managed appropriately, that was back in 2003 and that was written by people who were were people from that entrenched sector, the people that were there when coal was generating that sort of stuff, they said this could be a warning. Now, some people will go, oh, yeah, that's because they, you know, they, they worked with coal, they don't like wind, they would do that report. But the thing is, these people are experts. They're electrical engineers. They know what they're talking about. And what we've seen now in actual reality was they were right. It's paying attention to these people that know what they're talking about. They actually say pretty sensible stuff. It's often the shill thing. Oh, you're just a shill for... 
excellent. Yeah, that... it's, it's it's very frustrating when when people pull that. Says, well, no, these are people that are that know their stuff. They're very good at what they do. But you know, perhaps you don't like what they're offering. Yeah, and that comes back to what we talked about earlier about familiarization and and talking about things. You know, people who fault like there are some people that you can never reason with because they are so entrenched in their ways, they are never changing. Right? They're like a typical conservative. They're not going to change. They're going to keep it the way it is. Keep it the way is. I want to keep it this way. I've seen this a lot, particularly in the pro nuclear space. And and you know, I'm going to bring this up is that for so many years people in the nuclear industry have been beaten down by claims that they're killing babies and that there is this wounded reaction to people who go oh you guys had Chernobyl and there is this knee-jerk reaction that goes that goes on the full offensive like you know you're wrong you're an idiot you know you're thinking irrationally and all this sort of stuff and that what I found is some people that actually say that actually say it because they think that's what you're supposed to say you know that's the perception of what you have to do and that when you sit down with them and you get them to unpack their thoughts on it and you talk to them like you let them talk you just help you help them unpack the issue you go oh, okay Chernobyl so what what was the thing about that and you, you talk through it you don't tell them they're a bad person for thinking it and that sort of stuff you know I come from the position that I'll just give someone the benefit of the doubt I'll let them talk you know, I know a few people now that I've spoken to about nuclear issues that were against it. They were they were against it. It's just what they it, they weren't, you know, actively against it, but they were just they didn't want to support nuclear anyway. If someone's proposed a nuclear reactor be built in Torrens Island here in Adelaide, they'd be like, no way. And I'll talk to them about it. I'll get them explain things to me about the risk they think and all that sort of stuff, and we unpack it. And I've had the point where I've got people either go, well, actually, I don't mind anymore. And then there's some people that go, actually, I want to help you. Wow. I want to get this message out too. Whenever I have an interaction on social media or, or like Facebook, Twitter with Bright New World and that sort of stuff or, or in public when I'm talking to someone, I just give them the benefit of the doubt and I just unpack it with them. I go on the journey with them because they're going to have to, and Ben talks about this, about his story, he had to unpack it over a long time to uh, like each little step he thought and then realize, well, hang on, I got this wrong. And it's hard for people to say, I was wrong, you know. And if you put them in a position where it's public and you go and try to, like, force them to say they were wrong, they're not going to do it. You get them to talk about it and you have a conversation. I see some people on Twitter that people go, oh, I'm not going to talk to that person. That person's, you know, anti-nuclear, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, let's talk to them about it, you know. Let's, you know, I'm happy to talk to you and sit down and have a coffee and unpack it with you and that sort of stuff. And sometimes you come to this conclusion where someone goes, look, I'm not support. I'm not going to support it like it is here. But if you do, if these things are done, then I'm happy to. And I'm like, well, that's fine. I'm happy with that too. You know, and you know, we can move on from that and 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 move forward. And it's talking. It comes back to that thing. We all got to work together to get through this. So, and that's one of the kind of the big things. You know, everyone like all of our supporters at Bright New World and those who listen to this and that. I say is like, if someone comes to you and is like, oh, but you guys caused Fukushima and Chernobyl and you killed all these babies and that sort of stuff, just breathe and give them the benefit of the doubt and then ask them why. And then you can see when you ask why and you just, you don't, you just ask, you let them unpack it. And then when you find it, like cause you can easily see straight away whether yeah, that person is entrenched. They're never going to move. They're just trolling me. Ignore them. 
Whereas someone starts talking and then you unpack it. Like I saw there was someone on Twitter yesterday that came out and said, you know what? I was wrong. I think I know the one you're talking about. I think he's an editor yeah. for a power magazine too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he goes, I was wrong on this issue. And he's very was... tentatively said, I think there's a role here for nuclear. Exactly. Yeah. So he's like, oh, okay. I've looked at this. I've unpacked it. Maybe there is something here. So, you know, that's Ben's story, you know, and that's a lot of other people. I so, look, I've always been supportive of the technology. I've, I've spoken to people in the past couple of months that have changed their minds and that they're slowly coming on board and it's just talking to them and, and letting them and actually humanizing the industry. One of the most interesting things is I show people the movie Pandora's Promise because I have a copy of that. And of all the people in that documentary, the person who I got the most reaction to was Charles Till. Now, Charles Till was... The pro, I think he's the program director of the Integral Fast Reactor at Argon, Idaho National Laboratories. He was talking about his project and about how the reactor, they actually tested accidents on it. They did a three-mile island accident scenario. They did a Fukushima-style accident scenario before that even happened. They did a Chernobyl-style accident scenario, and the reactor shut itself down. It didn't melt down. They just gave it the accident conditions, took their hands off of it, and it shut itself down. And when he talks about his project, and this is why this is the feedback I was getting, is when people talk about when he was talking about that project, and you could see how genuine he was in his emotions and and his pride in the project, and how upset he looked when the project was shut down. People look at that and they go, "He's not a faceless monster. He's not a faceless." corporation like it humanized it because you notice a lot of the stuff you see from the anti-nuclear side is they dehumanize the sector the industry they make it like it's an evil corporation it's an evil entity it's not a person once you start to do that and you humanize the industry and you say look if you want to talk to a nuclear engineer there are nuclear engineers in social media they'll be happy to answer any question you've got People go, oh, oh, it's okay. That's a lot different. And and they start unpacking it. And you know, it's it's satisfying when you when people you know realize they come you know to a certain conclusion on issues, and they go, actually, I've learned something today. And you know, I might not support it because I still have these concerns. I'm a lot more comfortable about it. I'm not as anxious or or fearful of it. You know, so. That's one of the main things we do here in Bright New World is to try and have that vision, have that approach to people and things and, and get things moving. A lot of people are quite down on sort of social media and especially Twitter, but I think a lot of that comes from a um, people just wading into, into tribal political issues. And yeah, no joke, yeah. there is a lot of that that happens on there and I try and sidestep a lot of that as much as I can. But you're absolutely right. There is, and it's not just nuclear engineers, it's anyone with any kind of technical capability. Yeah. And you look around and, and just some of the stuff that you wouldn't even thought about. It was someone did a thread. I can't even remember who it was, but it's like a food agricultural food science professional. And they had a thread on just ugly food and what happens to food and what about, you know, movements. People say, no, we should have mm. more ugly food in the supermarket. And she just went through the whole thing of, no, this is how the industry works. Like, Ugly yeah. food doesn't need to go into the supermarket. It's not wasted. It becomes fruit juice or, or potato yeah. salad or whatnot. And just all these things that are very logical, make a lot of sense, and they go through it. Today yeah. I learned something. This is 
whatever industry or whatever aspect you would think, you know, there's someone on Twitter who, who covers that. And you can really learn you can really learn a lot and get a bit more of an insight on, on sort of how yeah. anything in the world works. So um, it's, I think it's a very, it's actually, you know, to come out in defense of social media, I think that's actually a very important um, aspect, a very powerful thing people can take away yeah. from it. And even, even if it's not, because social media is quite public, it's like a public forum, even emailing, because it's easy to find people's emails online now, like emailing someone from an organization or a research institution or a university that's an expert in that area you're wanting to look into, and you send them an email. I've seen, like when I was at SACOM, I used to get emails every now and then from students asking questions about things or, or people wondering about something and we respond to them and yeah of course you know you work for an advocacy membership based organization so people are going to have to go oh, okay so that's come from the perspective of an organization that has the respective sectors input into their policy directions and that sort of stuff and you have to kind of take it with that sort of grain of salt but saying to them oh okay look I've, I've contacted some companies and here's the feedback from their people who are experts in say environmental protection and management and this is the facts as they are and you just stand behind them and you say look they're honest you know we're not trying to spin or bend your arm it's just you know this is what it is and how it operates that sort of stuff and people do reward honestly eventually they look at it and go actually of all the people that gave us feedback that organization was the least bs orientated they're the ones that gave us some actually honest feedback so it's just the way it's going to have to be This has been the first half of the interview with Dane Eckerman. The next episode will pick up from here. A big thanks to Dane for making time for this podcast. A library's worth of materials were mentioned in this interview. A library's worth of materials were mentioned in this interview. And links for media referenced are listed in the description. If you listen to my 2019 intro episode, you will know this, but I'll mention it here as well. The EPCB Act is due for formal review this year. A way to speak up about your support of nuclear technology in Australia can be getting in touch with your local ministers. To facilitate this, a small group of us have used the one-click politics service to provide an easy way to do this. The page can be found at http bitly r 140a Link included in the description. Big thanks to Eric Meyer and Generation Atomic for making this happen. Thank you for listening. Australia has the responsibility to do its part, along with the rest of the world, in addressing climate change. Although not a large nation or economy, our national neighbours look to Australia for leadership in many aspects. Clean energy and innovation into such technologies are of paramount importance, the most powerful of which we have outlawed. Running a developed nation requires reliable, cheap energy. Renewables are fine to a point, but the balance will be covered either by continuing with more coal power or finally embarking on a nuclear build program. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.